Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and you're listening to the 10 Adventures podcast. We are more than just a travel company. We are a community of active explorers who have been inspired by the outdoors. Join me as I sit down with real people to talk about their most epic adventures on this incredible planet. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. This week, we are talking with somebody who knows a lot about adventure. From cycling around the world, walking across India, and rowing the Atlantic, Alistair Humphreys has explored the world and was named National Geographic Adventure of the Year in 2012. Alistair has also worked to raise awareness of adventures close to home, coining the term micro-adventures and recently writing the book Local, where he explores the 20 kilometers squared map around his home. Welcome to the podcast, Alistair. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm super excited. Uh, I've read, I think, almost all of your books. Uh, I read your first book. Uh, I actually read your website while you were biking around the world. And, oh, wow. Uh, that got me to leave leave a job uh, and go traveling myself, not around the world. But um, I remember thinking, oh, maybe I should go do something like this. And I just spent the summer uh, walking in the Alps. But yeah, uh, uh, from the early days, I've been a big fan of, of what you've written. And um, you've completed some incredible adventures. I mentioned you've cycled around the world, you've rode the Atlantic Ocean, you've crossed the empty quarter, and I'm just wondering, what drove you to un- undertake these epic trips? Well, I think my motivations evolved over the 20 or so years I've been doing adventures, but originally I was inspired by reading loads of adventure books and being curious about whether I might be able to try something similarly stupid and exciting to what I read in those books. Um and I was intrigued just to go to far off places and get away from boring old home, just like a lot of young, restless people. Um, and then over time, it, my motivations have moved through all sorts of phases, through trying to prove myself to other people, um, test myself and prove something to myself. Um, and increasingly, as I get older and care less about those things, more about just curiosity and enthusiasm for trying new things and just trying to shake up my days and make each day as adventurous as I can manage so yeah it's been a it's been an evolution of motives which I guess happens to anyone over uh, decades of their uh, hobbies life and career and my all those three things are the same for me which sometimes makes things tricky what I'm really interested is lots of people dream of doing these trips but you actually do them and so what is it about you that makes you go and undertake these trips that you know when you first set off on your bike people probably thought you were you were mad for you know for wanting to do this well i'm very lucky now because i've done lots of adventures it's quite easy for me to go and do lots of adventures and it becomes self-fulfilling so the the only really difficult or noteworthy thing i suppose was somehow daring myself to turn those daydreams which as you say lots of us have into an actual reality the first time Uh, to dare myself to not just dream about cycling around the world and talk about it but to actually get on my bike and pedal away from home and I was aided in that partly by not really knowing what else to do with my life I was a young guy who didn't really fancy sitting in an office yet for 50 years so I needed to do something until I had to go sit in an office Uh, so it was partly driven by that but also I've always been quite conscious of the passing and pressing of time and uh, and just wanting to not waste my time. So I think I just realized that I've just got to grab this opportunity now, even though it's quite scary. 
And then once you've done that one adventure, then from then on, it just becomes easier and easier, really. When you look at, you know, the three uh, adventures I mentioned, uh, cycling the world, rowing the Atlantic and crossing the empty quarter are, you know, how would you contrast and compare those? You know, obviously there's some similarities and there's some obvious differences, but are there there maybe some subtle differences that people wouldn't think of off the top about those, those three trips? Yeah, so I would actually say that rowing the Atlantic Ocean and crossing the empty quarter desert were virtually identical experiences. Um, one was dry and sandy, and one was wobbly and wet, but they were both wilderness experiences um, with a finite amount of supplies in which to get to the end, and they both involved me having to work and collaborate uh, with one person in the desert and three others in the ocean so a sort of team shared experience with all the ups and downs that involves so i think of those two as being almost identical experiences and then the different one would be cycling around the world which was solo and there's pros and cons solo versus other people and also it was much more of a human oriented experience pretty much every day cycling around the world i was interacting with other humans and and uh, and so it wasn't although i was still in wild places quite often it wasn't a such an isolating experience as the as the desert and the ocean about a decade ago you shifted to the concept of micro adventures can you maybe describe what these are for people who haven't heard of this idea yeah so i, I think anyone can think of what an adventure means to them and there's no point in me defining it it's much better that uh, you who are listening define it for yourself so dream of some sort of adventure whatever that means to you but then imagine that perhaps you don't have the time to do that or the money to do that or the expertise to do it or you live in suburbia not siberia and so you don't have the geography to do it so now you have two choices you can either think oh man that sucks i'd love to do an adventure but i can't or what a micro adventure would be is to say right what is a small simple achievable affordable version of that something that gives me a similar sort of experience but one that I can perhaps squeeze into this weekend or even overnight once I've put my kids to bed so it's basically the idea that it's always better to do some bit of adventure rather than no adventure at all so it's about looking for the opportunities that do exist in your life rather than bemoaning and getting sad about the obstacles and the barriers and limitations that that everyone faces and and from the outside it seems to me there was a shift from, you know, you going on adventures yourself to trying to help regular people find adventure. And, you know, is this something you consciously did? And if so, you know, why was that? Why, why did, why do you think you changed? I, I think it's a bit of an evolution really. So before I cycled around the world, I trained to be a high school teacher. So, um, when I was going around the world, I was talking in hundreds of schools and I guess doing that was sort of trying to encourage young people towards, hey guys, there's some cool stuff beyond the end of your street. Go have a look at it. So I've always been quite keen on that part of it. And adventures have done so much for me personally that I've really enjoyed saying to everyone, hey, this is great. This is not as hard as you think. Go give it a try. So I've quite enjoyed doing that. And then the um, the shift to micro adventures came from realizing that I was developing this audience of people who love the idea of big adventures. Hey, Al, tell us about cycling around the world we're not going to go do that themselves because they had a job and a mortgage and a husband and a wife and a cat and maybe not a husband and a wife and a cat. That would be a complicated <laughs> life, but complications in life. And so 
because I'd got so much from these wild adventures, I wanted to start to think, hey, maybe other people can start to do this as well. And I mean, this is, I'm, I'm not exactly Mother Teresa, but once you start doing stuff that's nice to other people and you get emails from people going, hey, thanks so much for that idea. It was great. That just feels really nice. And I mean, I've loved my big adventures, but geez, there's enough middle class um, privileged white men showing off about how tough they are in their amazing adventures. The world doesn't really need any more of that stuff. It's been great for me, but trying to encourage other people to adventure feels a little bit more useful as well with my time. And then how have micro adventures influenced you personally? Is there a favorite one that that you do regularly? Yes. So I think one of the challenging things when you're trying to tell stories and nudge people towards action is trying to come up with simple manifestations of your story that people can just grasp instantly go oh yeah huh I get that I can give that a try so I fiddled around for quite a long time with all sorts of little micro adventures but I think the one that connected the most and the and the one that I've probably enjoyed the most and that I repeat the most often was rather than thinking too much about the nine to five which grinds us down at times and gets in the way and spoils our adventures and all this sort of stuff how about instead thinking about the five to nine so when you finish work at five o'clock hypothetically (laughs) you have nothing to do hypothetically until nine o'clock the next morning so rather than bemoaning our eight hours of work what about if we started to try and celebrate our 16 hours of potential theoretical freedom so what I've been trying to do with my five to nine micro adventures is the idea of when you finish work one evening, turn off your computer and instead of just going home to watch TV, just head out of town and go sleep on a hill for the night. Just do something overnight and then wake up in the morning, get back to your desk, log on to Zoom, nine o'clock the next morning, boom, ready to go. You've had a micro adventure, a disproportionately large wild experience squeezed in around the framework of busy real life so yeah the the five to nine overnight micro adventure i think is my favorite example of a micro adventure and kind of leading on from micro adventures you've just written a new book called local which is a a a wonderful and thoughtful book about exploring your local ordnance survey map and searching for nature and wildness in your backyard and uh, i know a lot of our listeners aren't in the uk can you maybe just share the joy of the ordnance survey map yeah, sure. So in Britain, we have uh, many disastrous things. We we were discussing before we started to record my terrible internet connection and the impossibility of exporting British cheese these days. But one thing we do have that's good is the Ordnance Survey maps. Um, and they date back a few hundred years to when Britain was fighting the French and we decided we needed decent maps. So all of Britain today is covered with fantastic high quality maps the sort of resolution map you'd use if you're going hiking in the mountains and other countries have um, similar versions of them there's the u.s topo series in america um, i can't off the top of my head think of the canadian one but i'm pretty sure you guys have the similar sort of thing but so imagine the the sort of map that you use to go hiking on my map um, it's uh, one to twenty five thousand scale and the whole map of the area where I live covers about 20 kilometers by 20 kilometers broken up into one kilometer grid squares. So my idea was to try to spend a year exploring just where I live to see if I could find wildness close to home. And I did that by going out once a week 
to a randomly chosen grid square and doing my best to really explore that one kilometer area to try and see everything in that one kilometer and then by doing so to try to get to know the place I lived better than I have done in all of my years wandering around the world. Now, what I really love about this book is it's it's a beautiful and approachable way of bring, bringing together lots of different thoughts and concepts about nature, which I'm sure we've all kind of felt or maybe thought about while out hiking or cycling. Um, one concept that really struck me is you mentioned this shifting baseline syndrome for climate. Can you maybe share more about, about what that is? Yeah, shifting baseline syndrome sounds quite boring and, and nerdy, but I think it's one of the most important concepts I've learned about in a long time. And the essence of it is that we feel a bit sad, don't we, that nature isn't as good as when we were kids. Because when we were kids, there were loads of birds and loads of insects and everything was lovely. But actually, when we were kids, nature was still in a terrible state. We just thought that that was normal to us. If you ask our parents, they would have a memory from when they were kids, which was better than ours. And our great, great grandparents would have known an abundance that we can only begin to dream of. So each generation, the baseline of what we accept is normal and acceptable, uh, sinks a little bit lower, standards slip. And so now when we try to conserve and get wild places back to what they were like, we're not getting them back to how they used to be a thousand years ago. We're dreaming of getting us back to how they were when we were kids. And so in doing so, each generation erodes um, nature a little bit more. And once I once I became aware of that, I realized what a pernicious and, and, and problematic concept it is. So you start to see it everywhere once you're aware of shifting baseline syndrome. And, and throughout the book, you mentioned kind of this importance of time alone in nature. And you give some examples of how kind of time alone in nature has been an important part of kind of human development. And I wonder if you could maybe share, you know, your experience. You spent a lot of time alone in nature and, and why you think it's so important for, for humans. I've been very lucky to spend a lot of time in wild places on big expeditions but I'm also uh, in the real world, like most of us, and I, I tend to spend most of my days frantically chasing emails and uh, frantically checking Twitter and frantically checking the news and then charging around with far too many jobs to do. And I often in normal life forget to slow down and appreciate nature and the stillness and the calm and the peace and these happiness uh, that comes from just sitting in the woods for a while. So one thing I tried to do while doing this book, by scheduling once a week to go out and explore a, gr a grid square, it was a way of bringing that time in the woods and the peace and quiet and the calm, bringing it into my daily busy schedule of sending emails. So some weeks I thought, oh, I'm far too busy to go and... Uh, walk around that hill. I've got lots to do, but actually they were the weeks when I appreciated it the most. So small little bursts of nature were really, really important to me this year. You know, it's, I, I really love how you, you, you talked about that because I feel like our life is just, you know, full of busyness and things to do. And we only get this time, you know, away from all these, all these distractions when we, we spend time in nature. And I know there's growing research showing the mental and health benefits of time in nature. Uh, and your book, you know, paints a really powerful uh, portrait of why time in nature is so valuable. But on the flip side, 
it feels like we're losing a war against meaningless time on social media and time spent indoors. And, you know, with all these benefits, why, why do you, why do you think we're, you know, fewer people seem to be spending time outdoors than, you know, even a decade ago? I think we tend to make a big mistake of muddling up the words important and urgent. And there's so much in our lives now that is urgent. I haven't checked Twitter for an hour. I'd better see if anyone said anything uh, witty or clever about me. I, um, um, I haven't checked my email for uh, 20 minutes. I'd better do that to reply to my boss. So there's a lot of things that are urgent demands on our time. But if we stop and think, they're not really important. When I get to be an old, old man, hopefully looking back on my life, I'm not going to reflect on the times when I uh, managed to send all my emails. So I think we've just uh, got ourselves into this crazy whirlwind of an urgent busyness um, and have lost track of what's actually really important, which is, I guess it depends for different people, but for me, it's friends and family and doing stuff that is creative and purposeful not just trying to send a thousand emails and feeling really smug because I'm so busy. <laughs> um, you have an experiment you do in the book where you put the phone away and you spend 60 minutes on a log um, not doing anything. And can you maybe describe the impact of 60 minutes without your phone, without any distractions? <laughs> um, I'm quite a hyperactive person, so spending even an hour in my own company seems like a daunting prospect. And what I try and do when I feel that I'm a bit overwhelmed and too busy is to willfully waste, waste in quote marks, an hour of time by just sitting on a log in the wood. And I have to put my phone onto airplane mode and then physically chuck it to throw it beyond my reach because otherwise I'll just get too tempted to start scrolling through Instagram looking at photographs of bicycles or something pointless like that. So I then have to just sit on this log and my mind just goes into a fury of boredom and chaos and I'm thinking, oh, I'm wasting my time. And yet gradually you settle into it and notice the birds and the insects and the way the light moves through the trees and gradually settle into it. And every time I do this, when my alarm actually eventually sounds to tell me that the hour is up, I'm always surprised that my response is one of, disappointment not relief uh, that the alarm has sounded and it's time to go home so I think if you feel if you're listening to this and you're and you feel you're too busy to go sit on a log you probably really need to go sit on a log hey everyone this is Richard and I just want to take 30 seconds to let you know that if you are enjoying these stories and are interested in embarking on your own adventure then head over to 10adventures.com at 10 Adventures, our specialty is booking private and custom active holidays. Jump straight from dreaming to doing without any of the hassle of travel planning in between. Join thousands of other travelers who have already booked with 10 Adventures to destinations in over 85 countries and experience more of what our planet has to offer while making memories that'll last a lifetime. Now back to the podcast. You talk uh, quite a bit about this complex question of of growth versus nature and uh kind of my takeaway is our society is is really on this race for growth and we measure almost everything around um growth 
Um, but there's other countries that, that measure kind of societal impact in different ways. And you talk about how Bhutan does. Can you maybe just share a little bit more on your thoughts on, you know, how we measure growth and success and uh, as a society here in the Western world? Yeah, most of our Western countries um, base our economies on uh, gross domestic product, gross national product, how much we earn um, and how much the economy is growing. Um, if you want to get re-elected as a politician, then you have to promise we're going to grow, we're going to grow the economy. And yet, if you zoom back a little bit, that famous, wonderful photo of the the blue marble of the, our tiny little planet floating in the blackness, we're a small finite spherical little planet in the middle of nowhere it we it cannot it just literally cannot tolerate infinite growth so at some point i mean infinite growth is what cancers do at some point this planet's just not big enough for growth 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 so i think we need to start finding other ways to measure what the purpose of our lives are and to measure our perceptions of success and bhutan has a nice uh, way of measuring this they talk about the gross domestic happiness so they actually measure and register and put value on how content their population is and um, I don't want to get too wishy-washy because of course we need to earn money in order to live and all those sorts of things and I think that the economy done sustainably with through green technology and things there's no reason why you can't be both wealthy and sustainable but I think uh, things are quite skewed when we prioritize everything as being down to growth, 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 because at some point the planet just ain't big enough for endless growth. The book talks often about the state of public footpaths in the UK, and uh, I've lived twice in the UK, and one thing that just amazed me was the ability to get out, out of London relatively easy and just basically walk in nature. And uh, I was wondering if you could maybe just describe, you know, what what public footpaths are and um, how they're being impacted uh, in the UK currently. Yeah, we have this amazing um, network of footpaths. In, in in England and Wales alone, there's, I think, 140,000 miles of footpath. And many of these are thousands of years old, I mean, seven, 8,000-year-old footpaths linking places together. And loads and loads of them are 1,000 years old, linking little villages. And these are legal rights of way that go through farms and villages and all over the place. They're wonderful and everyone has the right to walk and t on those. And I know that this network is the envy of uh, many countries in the world. But gradually, is the the access and the rights are being eroded away. And there's a there's a, a gradual loss of these footpaths now. That ones that aren't necessarily used very often or haven't been mapped correctly uh, are in danger of being wiped off this legal map forever. So there's a a push in the UK to save these lost map, maps, uh, sorry, these lost footpaths. About 40,000 miles of path are potentially due to be lost. So there's quite a, an urgency to reclaim them because the uh, this network of footpaths across the country is a wonderful asset that we have here. And, and one thing that's always at play is kind of the, the property owner's you know, dislike of, of walkers typically. <laughs> and, uh, you have, you know, you see lots of signs and have discussions with local farmers. Um, what's it like, you know, these days walking around London? Is it, is it a, a kind of an aggressive aspect of local farmers and property owners towards walkers? Well, it, 
I don't. Um, I think aggressive is too strong, and I don't think it's any different now than it was five, ten, twenty years ago. Particularly, except that there is now more of an awareness of. Although she has to now forget my last answer, which was saying how wonderful all these footballs are. <clears throat> yes, they are fantastic, but actually, we only have a right to roam in England on about eight percent of the land, which is tiny, and the rest is all privately owned and privately owned by very very few people and we really don't have much wild open space in England and so there's a growing movement called the right to roam to try and open up some of these places say why the heck can't I go wander through this wood of course I'm not going to cause any damage of course I'm not going to leave litter or light fires I'm not going to bother you in your homes it's just I want to walk over that hill or through that forest so um no one owned that forest 10,000 years ago. So it's at some point, someone put up a fence and said, this is mine, keep out. And that feels uh, um, intuitively wrong to me. It certainly seems very different to say the uh, the more open spaces, spaces and traditional cultures of uh, North America. Um, but yeah, I know we have uh, quite different um, land access issues across the Atlantic. But it's interesting to see the other side to see um it gives you a, a fresh um perspective on your own good points and bad points i suppose there's an interesting story uh, in in the book where you're talking to a, a local farmer and you know he starts off very angry but as you talk he starts to realize uh you guys have you know common views on some things and you even know somebody can you maybe talk about that story and uh, uh what happened there yeah, so I met this I met this farmer. I was about to walk down a public footpath, so I was legally allowed to do so. But he got quite annoyed at me because he gets f- <clears throat> fed up of people walking through his field and, uh, in his mind, scaring his cows and things. And it's interesting to try to see both sides of these things because I'm legally allowed to walk down that footpath, not wander across the field, but wander down the actual path, the line. Um, but equally for him, he's trying to have a farm and look after his cows and I can see how it is annoying when hikers come walking backwards and forwards forth perhaps especially if they drop litter or their dogs chase the animals so I could see I can see why it is annoying to him but I'm allowed to do it so we're having a bit of an argument about this um but I think the interesting part is that once he realized that we had a mutual friend in common he became very apologetic that he'd been trying to stop me going on his land and that made me realize that there is a an issue with the countryside in Britain to do with whether you belong or not. So I'm a a white middle-class man who spent a lot of my time in the countryside. I feel quite comfortable walking around fields and footpaths and reading maps and talking to farmers. That's my normal life. How different that experience might have been had I been a black man or an Asian woman or or a disabled person. and there's this there's it made me realize there's a set of an otherness to british nature and landscape so it's not equally open to everybody and i and i don't feel that that's right at all you mentioned a few times in the book about not living in you know your ideal place um and i was interested what what would make a a perfect town for you to live in Well, I'd quite like to be able to go skiing over the weekend wherever I could live. <laughs> that would be quite a nice thing to do. Um, I'd like to live near... Mount- I miss mountains, uh, rivers that are 
big enough and clean enough to swim in or uh, canoe on. Um, I miss, um, I'd like to live near oceans with crashing waves, but I'd also enjoy living in a community whereby there were lots of other weird people like me who enjoyed running in the hills and camping and stuff. So I, I could go to a cafe or a pub and talk to people about these sorts of things. And where I live, which is a sort of suburban place just outside a big city, um, people don't really seem to engage with the outdoors at all, except to get in their car and drive to the shopping mall. So um, it's not my kind of place, really, which is one of the reasons why I decided to do this project to try to accept, hey, this is where I live. Let's make the best of it stop complaining about the problems let's look for the good stuff look for the opportunities try and find some nature and wildness and in that sense it was a really successful year because i realized that actually there's a lot more beauty and interesting stuff close to my home that i'd ever found even after doing micro adventures around here for many years i i'm interested the people who you know just drive through nature that never take the time to experience it how how do you how do you get those people to take the step and start enjoying nature? Because I've always felt you know once you spend time in nature and you realize the benefits of it, then you care a lot more about protecting it. But it feels like there's almost two different groups of of people that you know don't ever ever overlap. There's people that you know spend their time uh, not in nature, those that love doing it, and it, it feels like there's a communication problem to to let the others know about the power. Yeah, I, t I totally agree with you there that until someone cares about nature, then they're not going to bother about trying to save it. You know, they're not going to vote for a government party that prioritizes it or change their uh, lifestyle or their diets thing. So I think that's a really important thing. Um, how I'm going about that? Well, this is one of the reasons that I started this project. So for 10 years, I've been doing micro adventures, trying to encourage people to go hiking and biking and camping. And that's gone quite well. But in all those 10 years, I've always realized that I'm just preaching to the converted. I'm already, I'm a, I'm talking to people who are already a little bit interested in going camping and biking and being in nature. So what I wanted to try to do with this project, local, was to try and say, hey, wherever you live, even if you think there's no nature nearby, even if you're in a city, even if you don't own a sleeping bag and have no desire to run up a hill, even you can find nature and wildness close to home so so trying to reach a new audience of people who've never really considered themselves adventurous explorers was one thing I was exactly trying to do with this book to say even in your lunch hour one mile from your office you can be an explorer of the world if you go somewhere you've never been before and you look at it with curiosity and enthusiasm you're being an explorer uh, my last question is I'm interested you've traveled the world seen places and and things that most people will never even read read about um but how do you think all your travels have influenced your perception of the world and your place in it oh gosh that's a big question well traveling the world certainly made me very very grateful that i grew up healthy enough wealthy enough with a decent enough <laughs> pre-brexit passport to give me the freedom to travel the opportunity to travel I've met so many poor people in different distant continents who would love to do the sort of things I do, but will never, ever, ever do that. So that's given me an urgency not to waste those gifts and opportunities. Um, I think it's also given me a, uh, a confidence to, to be willing to just go to new places and to trust that this will probably work out fine. Let's just go 
and see what happens. And I think the final thing I'd say on that is that how um, having seen lots of other parts of the world is now giving me an interesting twist on exploring my fairly boring suburban backyard to make me realise that actually there are interesting places close to home. I don't have to go to the other side of the planet for that to be an adventure. I can live a little bit adventurously right here, right now, if only I choose to do so. I think a lot of adventure in the end boils down to curiosity and your attitude. Excellent. Alistair, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it was great to talk about your book and I urge everyone to pick up a copy of Local. Uh, you can get it within a minute if you go on Amazon. Um, but for people who want to, you know, learn more about you, how can they, how can they find you? Um, well, my name's Alistair Humphreys and you can then find me on, uh, Google, YouTube, um, Spotify podcasts, um, Instagram, all those sort of places, even LinkedIn. Go look, look for Alistair <laughs> Humphreys, wherever you waste time on the internet and you'll find me. I, I actually, I follow you on LinkedIn. So I get lots of little, t uh, t tidbits and nuggets that way. Ah, that's interesting because all the stuff I put on LinkedIn, I just automate it from elsewhere. I literally never look there. So I'm glad to hear that it's useful. <laughs> uh, excellent. I'll put uh, links to uh, Alistair's website and some of his social channels as well as to his book in the show notes. And with that, thanks for listening to this episode of the Ted Adventures podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures. Start planning your own adventure by visiting us at 10adventures.com and listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you find your podcasts. <laughs>